Hello everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson and I'll be your host as we take this journey through Delmarva and dis discuss any tragedies, whether they be crime or any man-made or natural disaster that has occurred on Delmarva, which includes all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Now this is a continuation of an episode that I started uh, about an incident on Dover Air Force Base that would have been um, published just a few days ago. It was a very long video, or I'm sorry, very long episode. So I did split it into two, but I'm trying to get these out together as quickly as possible. But if you have not listened to the first episode, you will definitely want to go back and listen to that as you know, any of the upcoming information would not you know, really be understood unless it had that other part. I was also joined by a fellow podcaster, Brad from Killin' Missin' Hidden, and I'll have the link to his podcast as well in the description and as usual any sources um, as well as my contact information will be in the description as well. I normally give a very long disclaimer but um, as this is the second part of a case you know all of the same disclaimers still apply. To summarize that I've gleaned all of this information from publicly available sources that as they have been gleaned from these sources, I cannot guarantee 100% the complete validity or accurateness of all statements, but I always do double check information. And as a warning, this does include the death of a child. So if this is something that you may not want to hear, then you know I'll have another episode out as soon as I can. But you know this episode can be very difficult. And without any you know, further ado, let's get into the rest of this story. Um, to our listeners, I had actually shown Brad some of this information previously. But actually, over the last couple of days, there was a case that I was looking at, and I've come to see, um, you know, because it's not actually something Brad and I discussed before, so I hope you don't mind, Brad. Um, but sometimes mm -hmm. it seems like if, some, if a child dies by child abuse, it seems sometimes the sentences aren't as severe. Um, it's called, you know, like this one is a criminally negligent homicide or... You know, this one, the murder by abuse or neglect by recklessly causing the death of a child, that was a minimum of 10 years. So mm -hmm. it's almost like if it was an older child or an adult, that same thing might have held like second degree murder or manslaughter that might have held a longer prison term. I know it all varies by state, but, you know, I've seen some child abuse cases that ended up in death that... Mm -hmm. Yeah, they seem to have gotten very light in sentences unless they went to say extreme measures afterwards to cover up the fact. Mm -hmm. So do you, I mean, do you have any ideas about that? Have you seen that too with the, the differences, you know, it's not just murder, you know, first or second degree. 
Yeah, I mean, every case is different. Every case is unique. And so it's it's hard to make blanket statements. But to the standpoint that somebody's charged with um, murder and the jury finds them guilty of criminally negligent homicide, what the jury is essentially saying is we believe that they are responsible for the death of the child, but it was not an intentional act that caused the death. That they did something kind of reckless, kind of foolish that caused the child to suffer these injuries. And that's a very important distinction under our criminal laws. Um, because obviously we, we've traditionally taken the approach, you know, throughout American history, going back into English law history, um, you know, someone intentionally murdering someone is a significant offense. Whereas someone, you know, if in Alabama, at least, um, if you are in a car accident and you kill someone, you're automatically charged with criminally negligent homicide. And it's not until they go through the investigation and all that, that they determine, you know, if, if it was the other person's fault, then the charges will get kicked out and all that. But if they can't determine clearly that it was not your fault, you actually have to go to trial on that charge. Um, because you are, you know, they take the approach of you did something to cause this accident. You did not mean to kill this person but it resulted in their death. And obviously that's, that's hugely different than hiring a hitman or <laughs> waiting Plotting. in somebody's closet and jumping them. Um, yeah. So I would, I would think that to the extent that you're getting verdicts based on it being a negligent homicide, that's why you're seeing the lighter sentences because there's no finding by the jury who is the ultimate decider of what happened in the case. You know what? What they say the facts are, that's legally what the facts are. Um, you know, they're saying this was not an intentional act and the judge has to sentence accordingly. Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of maybe an adult version or the adult version would be kind of like getting into a fight and hitting someone you know, too hard or recklessly and they end up falling and hitting their head or, you know, it, yeah. was, not, you know, it was not intended, but it was the consequence. Right, right. So, you you kind of put the ball in motion that ended up killing them. So the next step will be for me to tell everybody what the sentence was for Justin Corbett. But I, I want to review things that, you know, they, that were also reviewed during sentencing. And I did try to keep an open mind when I did begin this research. You know, I wasn't there. Nobody was except Justin and the two children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody else who testified was there. And so we have to take Justin Corbett's word. And he had actually received two good conduct medals during his service. And, you know, he had, um, let's see. So I'm a parent too. And, you know, looking at this, another thought would be that, um, Corbett, may have known CPR. That was another thing. Um, I think Nikki Dudley mentioned. I know that too, things can change very quickly. You know, little ones can get away from you. They can fall. Um, and 
you know, I want the answer to things. I'm kind of, I know I'm kind of giving a lot of thoughts at one time, but you know, all of these things were going through my mind when, okay, I'm trying to figure out if I were the judge, what would I give to him as a sentence? And, you know, I think as adults or as parents, not even parent has a loved one, you know, what would we want done? We want someone, you know, to pay the appropriate um, sentence. So, you know, I tried to go into any research impartially thinking of all these different things. And, you know, even though there were a lot of things on the news, like actual television news, there weren't as many articles as I would have expected. And mm. yeah, I, as a juror, I don't know how I would have felt about this case. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm going in a few different directions right now. <laughs> but my biggest hurdle was really the fact that the Corbett's only watched EJ occasionally. And you know, he spent most of his godmother. There was no definitive proof that the injuries were done exactly while he was there at the Corbett's. So mm -hmm. that's why some of the testimony, you know, about, oh, he was happy and healthy the day before. You know, there was still that inkling, okay, but that was the day before. And I did read mm -hmm. in an article with an interview um, with Nicole that did shed some light on a few things. And it caused me to start leaning more one way than the other. Nicole Dudley said that Corbett's changed his story. At different times, he said he didn't see what happened. Um, then other times that his son had pushed him. And frankly, if my son, even though he was a tot, had pushed someone that led to a death, I probably would have wanted to try to protect him. Not even, you know, they're sure. not going to prosecute a two-year-old, but at the same time, right? yeah, he, he would live with that for the rest of his life. Like there would always be kind of this knowledge um, if he ever heard about that. So you, you want to try to protect, protect them. Then there was the, you know, EJ had fallen from the landing all the way down the stairs to he fell backwards. So there really wasn't this consistent um, story. So that, though, was not you know, entirely indicative of guilt. You know, like I said, if his son had pushed EJ, that's his instinct to protect. Um, and saying that he fell from the landing and he fell backwards, that doesn't really cancel each other out. He could have fell, fallen backwards from the landing. So, um, mm -hmm. but what I just mentioned a few moments ago about the CPR, Corbett said that he did not perform CPR because he didn't know how to do it. But mm -hmm. there were notations in some of these statements about you know this particular topic. But even without notations about anyone who was on the base or an airman, they had to know how to do CPR. So before I even got to that, I was questioning it. My mother worked in a hospital cafeteria for years. They all had to be certified in CPR and they would have to take like refresher courses and they work in the cafeteria. So it's right. a requirement. And so even before Nicole Dudley mentioned that he would have had to know CPR, my mind was already going to that idea. So, and just going back to the example of my mother, everybody, whether it was maintenance, um, custodial, people who worked at the registers, you know, anybody who worked in that hospital 
had to have that training. So, as I would say, that it's required that members of the U.S. military are trained in CPR and they have to go through recertification every two years. So it's mm. not as though it's been five years had detraining. It's every two years. Now, right. if he had said he had froze, I, yeah, I think I could have, I could have understand him freezing. Um, I mean, my grandnephew fell in a pool one time and there were people there who knew CPR, but it's like, okay, this is someone I love and they froze. Everything was oh, yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but it, that, you know, that's his situation, but you know, it really did make me wonder why didn't he at least try to do something? Um, I guess you, you could probably feel shock going into shock, but the changing story is really, that really got to me. So, um, another thing it made me think of is, do you know that if, um, there's any requirement that if someone knows how to do a life-saving technique like CPR and they don't attempt it, can they be charged with anything or does that vary by state? Do you think? I'm so glad you asked that question because I get to tell the story of mine from law school. I had a torts professor who had the greatest example explaining this concept. Under, you know, all of our law comes from English law originally. And we've, a lot of the principles we have come from English law. And unless the legislature has, has passed a statute otherwise, we rely on this common law, as it's called. And so the common law on this issue has always held that you have no duty to aid. And my professor, way back when in law school, her example was if you're walking out of the grocery store or you're walking out of work and you're in the parking lot and you see this like two-month-old baby laying face down in a puddle, and literally to save its life, all you had to do was just kick it on its back with your toe. You have no obligation under the law to kick the baby. So, um, and on top of that, a lot of states have passed laws that make it like, an, I know in Alabama, obviously, if you undertake a duty to try to provide care, you can't be charged with anything if it goes wrong. But you're still not obligated to perform the care. And so I've always loved the kick the baby story because I just, you can't put together a more vile situation where you'd want to charge somebody, <laughs> but yeah. there's just no duty to do that. We don't have, we don't require people to, um, it could be, and, and I think what it comes down to is the public policy idea of, you know, what if you're driving down the road and you see an accident? Are you obligated to stop? Is the person behind you obligated to stop? Is the person in front of you obligated to stop? And it would just create a mess, especially during rush hour when you have hundreds of cars going by the scene of an accident. It's, I, I think it's just been generally decided that you're under no obligation to help. Um, the, there's always exceptions, like if you create the injury, Mm, okay. You have a duty to at least, you know, call someone <laughs> to come help, but you wouldn't have to perform CPR, even if you know it. 
So sometimes it comes down more to a moral or ethical feeling or obligation as compared to the actual legal obligation. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned um, in most states, I think it's called something like a Good Samaritan law, that if you try to help someone and they're injured, that you can't, yeah, that you're not going to be held liable for, say, breaking a rib while you're doing CPR or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, not too well. It was a little while ago. I fell in a store, and it was because a carpet had like flipped up somehow. It was red, wet outside, and mm-hmm. they had this um, throw carpet down, I guess, to wipe your feet. And not one person came over except for a woman who looked to be in her eighties to help <laughs> me. And I mean, not even the cashiers. Like nobody came over to help. And afterwards, I was like, oh, I kind of wonder if it's because. They thought if I, like, say if I couldn't get up and I fell again, you know, okay. if yeah. somebody would hold them liable. And it's right. kind of sad, too, that it's, it's gotten to that point you have to have laws to say, okay, if you try to help someone, you won't get in trouble for trying to help them. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. So um, you know, looking at the Corbett's here, um, that going back to that one blog by one of Nikki Dudley's friends, she says that Aubrey Corbett stated that she and her husband had not spoken during the incident. You know, so while all this was going on, supposedly Aubrey did not know what was going on. But, you know, it still amazes me. I know this was over 10 years ago. But people don't realize police do check call records. <laughs> they do look at that stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know... Again, I do just want to say this is from a blog by an article written by a friend of Nikki Dudley's, but they did speak during that time frame. Um, It also said that Corbett posted to Facebook um, earlier that day. um, The quote was, I can't wait for the work week as the weekends hold nothing but stress for me. Mm. And they tried to use that That as... That doesn't look good. Yeah. And, And yeah, at first glance it's like okay so was he dreading ej coming over you know like okay i have to watch two kids instead of just my son you know what was he thinking but yeah i can say sometimes i've been in those situations too where it's been like okay saturday morning do the shopping saturday afternoon get the laundry done saturday night you know so that your whole weekend is really filled up but yeah my initial thought was oh really so you're seeing this little boy as stressful you know this little innocent child yeah um but, um, <laughs> okay, I'm trying not to laugh on this one. The post was not allowed because the judge was not familiar with social media. Okay. Now, granted, this was a little while ago. But still, sure. the, the trial itself took place in 2016. So while the events happened earlier... The trial was in 2016. So, um, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty sure by then probably social media had been used in some court cases by that point. So it's not like, yeah, it wasn't, I'm thinking it's not something like the very first time that DNA was ever used in a trial where Mm -hmm. you had to have an understanding of the science. This was... Somebody typed something on a computer that millions of people possibly could have seen, depending right. on whatever his security or privacy settings were. So um, I did actually try to find anything about that, you know, search terms like 
using the judge's name and Facebook, <laughs> just something to try to find out something specifically about that article, but I came up with nothing. So <laughs> then again, it was a very specific search, you know? Right, um, right. So some of these things took me from being off the fence, from leaning towards guilty. Like he had to be guilty of something, you know, whether it was intentional or not, there was some guilt. And if I had been on the jury and had to make a decision at some point in time, I think, I know people might not agree with this, but I might have had to acquit on most charges because of that beyond a reasonable doubt. Because mm -hmm. the godmother, any time that day, puts that just little bit of doubt in my mind. My emotions, though, seeing the pictures that I saw say convict. But if I looked at my job as right. a juror, and I've actually been a juror, which the case was um, declared a mistrial. You know, it, stepping back and not putting my emotions in there, I think I would have had to acqu acquit unless they had some, you know, other charges in there that he could have been charged for. Um, because mm -hmm. you know, if EJ had been dropped off at Corbett's house the way that he looked in those pictures, and I know swelling does take a while to occur. So if it sure. just happened, it might not, there might not be any swelling, but he should have called 911 earlier based on how severe the injuries were. You know, I, and again, emotionally, I want to say convict, but there really was not a lot of surefire evidence. Mm -hmm. But um, in the case of this, you know, I wanted to say, give him the max <laughs> after I saw the pictures. Um, but you know, do you think emotions play a big role in convictions, even if there was no, like, say, definitive proof? It was all circumstantial. Yeah, it, definitely. Um, in fact, that's that's probably the most important factor uh, in my experience in dealing with jurors. Is I mean, I, I've had jurors literally tell me after a trial, "Well, we didn't think he was guilty, but we couldn't take the chance." Oh, uh, which you know, it's kind of like a kick to the belly. Oh, um, mm. and it's because it's. You know, it's that particular case was sexual abuse on a child. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on one hand, I understand that reaction. On the other hand, um, you know, that's not your job <laughs> yeah. as a juror. Um, so, yeah, no, emotions are, uh, in my in my experience, are probably as important as the actual facts. And you have to manage that a lot when you're in a trial. I know in the case that I was actually an alternate juror, but you know, I was there during the parts of the case that were presented. Sure. Um, the last person picked and I'm like sitting there, got my purse in my hand, like, okay, we're going. And <laughs> they call my name. But after the mistrial was declared, I had lunch with a couple of the other jurors and we all said we would have found him guilty, mm -hmm. even though they had barely presented any evidence because there was that emotion. Mm -hmm. And I was very young then I was like 19 or 20. So I was really, really sure. young. Um, but now I probably would look back and say, okay, I see why a mistrial was, you know, 
um, was called, um, you know, information was brought up that was not executed, knew they did not have it, have evidence for, and she still brought it up. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was kind of prejudicial. So yeah. I understand that and look on it 20 some years later. Okay, I realize that's not how justice, our justice system should work. Right. But looking at this case, you know, it's like this child died. He's not going to ever get to know any of you know the joys of learning how to ride a bike without training wheels, without all these little things that everybody takes for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, going back to, you know, thinking about Justin Corbett, if he had injuries beforehand, I do think he should have called 911 because those injuries were severe enough. They would have been right. apparent. But do right. I think Justin Corbin woke um, when he woke up that morning? Did he say, "I'm going to get so mad, I'm going to beat a child"? No, I don't think anybody would ever think that. And if right. everybody, if we looked at everybody's um, social media, and you know, had some of those little things we you say just to vent, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, anything then we would all be in a lot of trouble, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, so and that's why a lot of social yeah. media isn't used mm-hmm. in cases because you're not, it, it, you know, it, it would fall under the hearsay rule in that it's an out-of-court statement being offered to prove a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also concerns about um, how authentic the statement is. You know, was it, was it, uh, you know, if there was some technical error that caused words to be deleted or something like that from the posting? And so, you know, introducing that is on the burdens on the attorney who wants it in the case. Okay. And if they can't meet the evidentiary standard, then the judge has no choice but to say you can't present it. Gotcha. Now, for the judge to couch it in terms of, I don't understand this. <laughs> yeah. That's probably not the smartest way to handle it, but... <laughs> Uh, that there there could be a reason beyond the judge's ignorance. Yeah, I think we can. Now that you brought that up, we can probably look at autocorrect. Um, you know, mm-hmm. for some things that we may have sent that we did not intend to send. Oh yeah. Um, or even did he send it? If you don't have a lock on your phone, like a pin yep. code or a fingerprint, theoretically anybody could have sent it. Um, yeah. But. You know, waking up and just kind of maybe snapping or getting upset, it doesn't excuse what he did. And when you're that much bigger than that small child, all it takes is one hit or push or, you know, anything. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really magnified on a child because they're so much smaller than an adult. Um, Yeah. Now, given the extent of his injuries, I think it would have had to have been more than one hit. You know, and once you take that second hit... Yeah, that second hit then to me shows somewhat of an intent, maybe not to kill, but to hurt. And so as you can probably tell by all of my thoughts, I'm going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm trying to temper my emotions with facts. And, you know, I do not envy these jurors at all for what they had to um, kind of wade through and try to put their emotions aside um, so criminally negligent homicide, 
can carry up to eight years of prison. Now, what did Justin Corbin get? 18 months of probation. Probation. So, regardless of, you know, if I can sit back and say, you know what, I'm not entirely convinced, you know, that it was all his fault or, you know, exactly what he did, I'm, I'm still pretty sure he had to have done something. He did. So, to get 18 months of probation, ah, <laughs> you know, that, to, for his mother, that had to be, like, uh, to say it was a slap in the face is an understatement, but maybe punch to the gut, like you said uh, Especially earlier. <laughs> when the judge is, yeah, especially when the judge is presented with now the fact that mm -hmm. the jury has said he's responsible for the death of the child. Exactly. And that, that's tough. That's, that's a very, it's a very light sentence. Yeah. And it's okay. It, you know, made a good point then he the judge is presented with the fact that the jury has found him guilty of something and that something carries up to eight years it's at that point you know on a um i guess you would say slander or libel depending on if you're writing or you know verbally saying something you can take the word alleged out because they have now been convicted mm -hmm. and instead of saying the right. alleged killer alleged abuser it's they are convicted of that so you can take that word right. out it is now fact but he got 18 months of probation and yeah, it's, I almost wonder if the jury, once they heard that, if they had to sit back and say, wow, <laughs> you know, 18 months. Um, I don't know what was going through everyone's mind. Maybe it was that small piece of doubt of whether or not he showed up mm -hmm. there with some injuries. Um, you know, it's, you know, a child is in, when a child is in your care, it's your responsibility. So whether or not you intended to hurt him or not, something happened. And then it seems like he didn't do all he could to try to save that child. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of reflecting back on everything, I don't think the Facebook post would have really affected my decision. You know, like I said, there's lots of things that I feel stressed about on the weekends. Um oh yeah yeah so um that didn't mean that much to me as far as his guilt but to see probation and just the child had such severe injuries and there's enough testimony yeah. to indicate that yeah that these injuries were not an accident so really he just had some time served and you know that was it now, something I did find interesting is part of his probation was he could not be around children, including his own, which, mm -hmm. frankly, is understandable. If you're convicted of anything involving abuse with a child, yeah, why, why let them near another child, even if it's their own? But, right. you know, what about things, too, like daily life, um, going to... A park or a family event like say um, your grandmother's birthday party and you know your nieces and nephews will be there or something like that mm -hmm. do they have to get like an approval do you know or can it vary by state um, my experience with that is um, traditionally it's enforced based on your residency so you okay. if you're living with a child 
that would be a violation of your probation. Okay. Um, but you can also do it in other ways. For example, I had a client one time who uh, was a registered sex offender, and one of his favorite activities was to go to the park and sit and watch the kids, and he got arrested for that. Well, okay, <laughs> he's intentionally putting himself in the position to be around children. So your example of going to a birthday party where you know there's going to be children present, that would probably be considered a violation of the probation. In my experience, when a judge lays down a condition of probation, unless he specifically or she specifically states otherwise, it's not something that's waivable. And so if the judge's order says you cannot be around children, there's not going to be an exception to that. You I mean, if you can go to the grocery store and do your shopping and walk by children, but okay. you just can't put yourself in a position where you will be around children okay. and not violate that order. Yeah, it's just that was a very interesting condition. But as as a the mother of those children, I mean, with Aubrey, um, his wife, I mean, I would never want to leave my child alone <laughs> with him again. You know, even though it is oh, their certainly. father. Um, you know, so the final decision ultimately was up to the judge as far as sentencing. Um, do you think maybe mm -hmm. any of his military awards might have played a role in the sentencing? So, yeah, generally what happens, you know, is sentencing occurs down the road. It's not an immediate thing. And they the, the delay is caused from um, they have a probation officers do a, a pre-sentence investigation wherein they gather up kind of a mini biography of the person. So the judge has an idea of, you know, where they've come from, if they've got a criminal record, what good things they've done in the community as well. Okay. And then the, you know, it's, it's another hearing. So witnesses are offered and the judge listens to all that. And um, a lot of times the victims will, you know, hear the mother could have made a statement. Um, the, the, the father could have addressed the court if he wanted to. But yes, I mean, is is certainly his military history would be taken into account, but it'd be weighed against all the factors. And and you know, getting a sentence of eighteen months to me rings that the prosecution probably didn't do a real good job. Um, you know, I, earlier you mentioned that the doctor that testified was not a doctor mm -hmm. that was involved in the direct care right. of EJ, and you know that that's. As a defense attorney, that's something I would jump all over. Of you know, you've got the death of a child, and you can't even bring in the doctor that saw the child. You're just going to find the one with the easiest schedule. You know, how, how many other shortcuts have you taken in this investigation when you won't even take the time to bring in somebody who witnessed EJ's injuries? Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, I suspect that the prosecution probably didn't do a real good job in presenting evidence of culpability and intent and things like that during the hearing. And the defense, you know, may have had a, a, a an easier battlefield to fight on than, than you would think. 
Yeah, and, and bringing up that doctor, you know, I can see maybe bringing her in as an impartial observer afterwards, mm-hmm. but have one of the doctors, like the one who did tell Nikki Dudley, you know, this is not an accident. It doesn't look like an accident to us. Um, who had to break the news to her that he was brain dead. They were mm-hmm. actively involved at that time. You know, and just like with the pathologist afterwards and the abuse experts, they're kind of taking a step back and looking at it. So if the right. doctor had been presented in that manner, okay, but then have a doctor who actually looked at EJ in person and could right. see those things that you just can't describe. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this was, you know, like I said, on the news, it was a pretty big case as far as, you know, watching it on the TV, those types of things, but not as much in terms of articles. That actually did surprise me a lot when trying to research it. You know, I'm trying to think of things that I remember seeing on TV. Um, I think it was hard, too, to accept that a service member when, you know, we in Delaware, we were proud of the, you know, we see the role that it's served through the previous wars that it's serving currently. And I think as a state, it, it was hard to handle that a service member, even though they weren't from the state, mm-hmm. they represented that Air Force base and they took the most innocent of lives that are out there, you know, a small child right. and the small child of someone who was serving overseas. Right. And I, I think that's kind of why it was on the news every night. Um, you know, it, it was just really hard to see someone that we respect military than having them put in this case. But it, like I said, bad apples. It's, but then again, I say that, then I step back, back and say, is he a completely bad apple or is it just that one five-minute time period or however long it took sure. out of his whole life. But that's the thing. All it takes is a minute. Yeah, and, I mean, we've all been in situations where we've done something stupid and immediately regretted mm-hmm. it. Fortunately, oh, yeah. we haven't all been in the situation where we've killed a child. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, just from what you've described and laid out, the injuries are really concerning mm-hmm. um, because that's, to me, as as a layperson, I don't believe you get the, that level of injuries from falling downstairs, and that makes me think there had to be more going on than what we're being told. Yeah. Um, so I I don't know. I mean, if for at least Alabama, I'm considered pretty liberal and a bleeding heart and all that because I <laughs> worked in criminal defense. And I'm not one who's, you know, takes a hard stance on a lot of things. But being presented with something like that, I'd have a hard time just giving probation. That That's just too worrisome to me. To, I mean, to have a detached retina. And didn't you say there were evidence of internal injuries as well beyond the brain? Yeah, there were like... Yeah, there were injuries. There was like um, bleeding between the brain and the skull. Mm. And the articles always mentioned carpeted stairs. Yeah, yeah. And the first time I saw that, I'm like, okay, 
I'm pretty sure they're saying carpeted for a reason. And yeah, it's like, it's not like he fell down eight concrete steps that didn't have any cushioning. Yeah. It had something there and it, it was important. That was a very important distinction to make as compared to blocks and concrete or things like that. Um, and I tend to be very middle of the road. I'm very analytical and I do try to look at every single side, you know, that I've never been in somebody's particular shoes, try to look at it from their perspective. And I think that's why I can question exactly, okay, when did he get these injuries? Sure. Was it beyond a reasonable doubt? Um, but once the jury had all the evidence that they had, and admittedly, there's probably a lot of things that were covered in the actual court case that they didn't put in the articles and that I couldn't find online. So presented with that information, they made that verdict and it almost seems like the sentencing guideline of up to eight years was kind of like, oh, well, it's there, but, you know, (laughs) just kind of being soft with it. I mean, poor... Poor Nikki Dudley is going to wake up every morning and probably the first thing she's going to think of is her son, whether it's, you know, almost a reaction to think he's still there, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm going to go get him up from bed. But, you know, she did that for 16 months and all of a sudden he's not there and she expects him to be. And to think about all he missed because a person for such a short time in his life may have been a good and caring person 99.99% and at the top was that one little millisecond or minutes and it destroyed lives not just his own life but Evans Nikki's and his family too his kids are going to grow up without a yep. father so it's more than oh, yeah. just yeah yeah, the impact goes way beyond just mm-hmm. him, um, and that—I mean—that's something the court would consider in in their sentencing. Yeah. Um, you know, along with, I assume, since he's found guilty of a felony, he probably doesn't have a career in the Air Force anymore. Yeah. Um, so he'd be starting over from scratch. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to weigh, but, uh, you know, just. Brad speaking for Brad and playing Monday morning quarterback and not knowing exactly what happened in the trial, what evidence was presented and all that. I just have a hard time with the idea of a death of a child resulting in probation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't talking like he turned around on the stairs, not knowing Evan was behind him and he Mm -hmm. fell. That's an accident. That is pure 100% accident. The injuries did not reflect that. Yeah, well, and I mean, even if he gets mad and he pushes the kid or, you know, whatever, the the lack of con- objective concern afterwards mm-hmm. is really concerning. Um, to not take any steps to really take care of the child mm-hmm. or to aid him, uh, it, it, it looks bad. Yeah, I'm hoping that his son, Jax, does not remember any of this. Right. He was yeah. around two ish, so hopefully it's early enough that he's not going to remember seeing a child fall like that or seeing what his father did or what you know, what the exact circumstances were. You know, that he does not remember that growing up and that it 
if it does, if he does somehow remember any of that, that he's given the, the help that he needs. Um, I think that's something we have to look at. And, you know, previously I said, but maybe say, okay, you know what, I'm going to email Brad is you had an episode where you mentioned mental health and I could tell that, you know, you were pretty passionate about that, mm-hmm. you know, and the third episode that I did for this show, I went into it thinking this guy is, you know, he killed two people. He left eight children without a father, you know, a total of eight children without a father, shot at least three other people that day, almost shot a lot more, like a sleeping child in the house. Um, mm-hmm. And just as a background, um, if this is your first episode listening, in episode three, someone did go throughout two states, actually, um, Delaware and Maryland, and was randomly shooting in some places, and then in other places, aimed. He actually intended to kill people. But there were so many things that happened to him as a child that were never addressed. His brother actually went through the same type of trauma, and his brother was also... And in this particular case, he was you know, laying on the ground, crying for help. Literally, he was crying for help. Mm-hmm. And nobody got him that help. And, you know, thinking yep. back to, say, Jax, or as they said with Corbett, he received counseling. Anytime there's a trauma like that, there has to be an openness or an understanding that counseling may be needed to not be ashamed to say that you need counseling. And for people to recognize that, and not just the parents, but the schools, um, counselors, things like that, um, to try to make sure anybody who goes through any type of trauma like this has the help that they need. And you know, kind of, I know that was a little bit off topic, but I am thinking of everybody else who was impacted by this crime, and that his mm-hmm. youngest son may, you know, may still have some memories about it, and making sure that he's taken care of. Right. Yeah, because it definitely could have a very negative impact on his life and drive him in a totally different direction than where he should have gone. Yeah, it can. you can go from being either a productive member of society to someone who causes chaos, basically. And I don't, you know, I, from that case, that third episode, somehow my whole position on some things I don't want to say they changed but it allowed me to look at things more objectively I guess Mm. you would say that you know stepping back from it I can't judge the whole situation based on a couple pieces of information I need to you know kind of look at everything I guess maybe that's what the judge was doing looking at everything and thinking he's you know he's done a lot of good in his life but he, he hurt a lot of people too Corbett did yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, see, we've been going about an hour and a half, but I think it was a really good episode. And I really thank you for those perspectives, too. You know, you're kind of seeing it from, you know, a legal perspective. And also, you know, people need different perspectives because everybody's situations aren't the same. And so, you know, it's good to get other ideas about a certain case yeah absolutely and it's it's, I mean that's part of why I got into podcasting is 
um, getting frustrated listening to <laughs> podcasts where they start talking about the law and have no idea what they're talking about. So I'm yeah. glad I was able to come on and, and maybe offer some useful perspective today. Oh, yeah. I mean, even after reading through a lot of research, there are still things that I know I probably missed or things that I just had never heard of before or didn't think about because sure. I'd never come across it. So um, um, I'll also leave a link to your podcast um, in my description if you want if anyone wants to go over and listen. Like I said, I binged them a few times. You know, I'll, like take a few episodes and I'll listen. And, you know, like I said, it you did sound sincere and that's what really grabbed me, you know. And... Well, thank you. And, and I am just because it's frustrating to see people who are not bad sorts who are just suffering from a medical condition mm -hmm. and they're not getting any help. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they, you know, as I said multiple times during my career, the, the color in their sky is not the same as ours. And uh, so they make odd decisions that end up getting them arrested. And and really, you know, particularly in Alabama, we don't fund any mental health uh, resources in any meaningful way. Oh, and we leave the burden on the criminal justice system to take these people that are problematic and lock them in a cage, which, you know, expends taxpayer resources and takes up space that we could put, you know, child traffickers or mm -hmm. drug traffickers, people of that ilk that we would want to have locked up instead of this guy that's just sick yeah and you know not only the resources of the money that it takes to house the person in jail but also what that person could have given back to society exactly you know like they may have they may have become a counselor yep. themselves or you know whatever they wanted to do but now they're not giving back to society either so it's like this double whammy it's not just losing resources by taxpayer funding it's also what this person could have done and now they're not doing. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And so, you know, that's what, you know, as the podcast has evolved, I started out with more like, okay, well, this interests me to, you know, by episode three, I'm like, okay, there's a lot here that, you know, I think unless you start to research, you don't realize just how much, you know, really goes on behind the scenes. We just hear this person did this crime but then there's so much in between. And hopefully that will help the rest of us spot things, you know, be able to help others. You know, I know we don't live in a perfect world. Trust me, you know, we do not live in a perfect world or a perfect society, but I think the more people who are willing to step in, maybe recognize or educate themselves about certain things, the better society will be overall, the healthier society will be. Yeah, so. and, and I mean, you bring up a good point because we have to remember the media is only going to present the juicy bits. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to listen to, you know, a doctor testify for four hours and summarize that. Exactly. We want to hear about, you know, how was he killed? What, you know, what weapon did he use or how did he cover it up? And so mm -hmm. that skews our view a lot of times mm -hmm. into as to how the criminal justice system actually works. And, you know, it causes judges to get lots of hate mail and um, <laughs> things like that. When in reality, there's so much more that goes on. And in, until you really sit down and try to go through a case, mm -hmm. you see that how it's presented 
in the media versus how it's presented at trial are two different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll have a lot of media reports about things that occurred that never get shown to the jury for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, you know, I, I always caution people not to rush to judgment in a case, even when what you're seeing seems like it's open and shut, you know, the ugly way I put it is a, a trial is not about getting to the truth. The trial is about presenting the best evidence you can. And, um, you know, we, we hope that through the adversarial process, we get to the truth, mm-hmm. but in reality, it's, it's a little bit of a game. Um, and it comes down to the quality of the people involved and what they can do to, find ways to present information or to keep certain information out. Um, and it, it's just a lot more complex than people seem to think. I think it's years of growing up on with Matlock where, you yeah. know, two weeks later, like I said, they're, they're in court and it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no, no. I would tell my, my client's family that you're looking at two years before you'll see the inside of a courtroom. Uh So Brad and I did go off on a couple different topics, um, but at the same time, it was really good to get a perspective um, of an attorney, someone with legal background, you know, to you know, get a different view of things, um, looking at it differently than just someone who's following a case on TV. So I really appreciate that he did join me for this episode. Um, it, it was a very difficult episode because my heart is saying that, of course, his punishment should have been so much more severe. It should not have been you know, um, suspended or anything like that, a child is dead. And there's really not any answers when it comes down to it. From a legal standpoint, I do understand that there could be some reasonable doubt to um, some things in in regards to the case. You know, we weren't there on the jury. We just have the newspaper articles that we may um, you know, find about the case. You know, was there something that the judge saw or knew that would have, you know, kind of pushed the judge to, you know, go with a lighter sentence or no? Um, how much of a factor did his military service play in it, if any? Um, but as a mother, just Ever since I did become a mother, I've been very, very empathetic. I I mean, some of my emotions have changed so much that, you know, whenever there's a situation about any case, I just automatically think of the parents. And, you know, it's unimaginable what some parents go through in terms of when there's a crime against their child. It's the fight for justice and making sure that the person who did it both gets the punishment that they deserve as well as making sure that they're not 
out on the streets to do something to someone else. That has to be tempered, though, with facts and some of the actual presentation in this case, you know, as far as the doctor who actually did not treat him giving testimony and, you know, the way it was presented, they may have been able to, you know, get someone who actually treated him as well and then had the other doctor come on and say that, you know, she was looking at it from a third party perspective, just looking at facts, um, you know, because she wasn't there when he was being treated. And I can only imagine that, you know, the doctors and nurses, any medical staff that was in there when he was brought in, even though, you know, people try to stay detached as much as they can when they're treating someone afterwards, you know, they have to t probably take a step back and say, you know, oh my God, that was a baby. You know, that was an intentional infliction of wounds. Um, so, you know, they, it's, very hard not to get emotional, I would think. And so it would have been good to have both perspectives from someone who, you know, felt the emotion, felt the, you know, kind of the energy in the room. And by energy, I'm not only talking about, you know, how quickly they were moving. I'm, I'm talking about the actual feelings in the room, but then having that, you know, kind of impartial third person in there to say, you know, well, this is looking at just the facts. You know, I think that was one of the bigger, um, I don't want to say problems, but maybe, you know, misjudging of the situation and not getting a treating doctor on the stand. So I appreciate everybody hanging in for, you know, a very long episode, you know, but this story is, you know, very important in a couple of ways. And, you know, Corbett previously, you know, pretty much from what they, what the article said, had a spotless record. He was decorated for his service. So, you know, did that play a part? But looking at him initially, you wouldn't think that anything bad would happen. You know, but it just took possibly just a moment for him to get angry or to snap. And... The young life of a small child was taken. The dreams that his mother had for him were gone in just really a couple of moments. Yes, EJ hung on for a little while, but it was those moments with Corbett that changed a lot of people's lives. So, you know, I will talk to everybody soon. I actually want to try to get another episode out by the end of the week. I have, you know, quite a few episodes that I'm working on, whether I'm, you know, reached out for more information and I'm waiting on those or I'm just still, you know, gathering information. But, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of the tragedies that did take place um, on um, Delmarva. So I will talk to everybody then. And until then, have a safe and happy week. Bye-bye.